everyone. Uh, we just finished a five-week series called Building Thriving Families, and I hope it was helpful for you. But, but I could almost feel some of your tension uh, because as I presented biblical truths and models on family, I could hear some of you thinking, but that's not been my experience. That, that's the ideal, but, but my marriage looks nothing like that, or my singleness feels nothing like that, or our parenting is far from resembling that. And all around us in our culture, the idea of family structures is almost dead, or at least it's dying. So, so where does that leave people who haven't experienced the ideal, who haven't had a, a healthy parent relationship, or ha haven't had a great sibling experience? Maybe your pursuit of your Christian faith has led to people close to you abandoning you. How does this widespread deterioration of family affect how we see each other in the church as brothers and sisters? That's the bridge that I want to build this week and, and what we're going to be talking about in this next series. You know, Jesus had a revolutionary take on the idea of family. Some might even call it alarming. Jesus was part of a family. He had a mom, Mary. He had an adoptive father, Joseph. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, remember, so Joseph wasn't his biological father. Mary and Joseph had other children, and so Jesus had some half-brothers and sisters. According to our definitions, then he was from a mixed family, uh, but he never took a wife of his own, and he never fathered children of his own. And so contrary to this idea that the highest social obligation of every Christian is to settle down and start a family, Je Jesus had a pretty radical perspective. And this revolutionary view came out in a very interesting encounter with his own family members over in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. You can get there, and we're going to be jumping around the Gospels a little today, but we're going to start in Matthew 12. And in this chapter, Jesus was under a lot of ministry stress. The religious leaders had, had finally overtly declared their intentions to destroy him. And the crowds still aren't totally getting his teaching, and they're demanding signs to authenticate his ministry. And despite all of these pressures, Jesus is still uber-focused on his mission of teaching and healing and casting out demons. And just as these pressures are, are crushing in on him, he gets a surprise visit from his family, his mom, and his brothers and sisters. I can, I can feel some of you tensing up right now just thinking about family dropping in at your workplace. Mark's account of this incident hints that they showed up to try to dissuade his ministry in some way. They, they heard about the trouble that he was causing. Maybe they thought that he was in some danger. Maybe they thought he was out of his mind. Uh, maybe they just wanted him to, to come home for a while and perform some of his elder brother duties. Some scholars wonder if the reason that Joseph isn't mentioned in this account is that maybe Joseph has died by this time. No matter what's happening, his family showed up to alter Jesus' ministry in some way. So I want you to look at Matthew 12, 46 to 50, to see this first glimpse at Jesus' revolutionary perspective on family. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? There's the question. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that's radical. And listen, I, I want to be clear up front. Jesus did not come to abolish the family as we know it. Later, he would uphold kind of the classic family commands like children obey your parents, and he rebukes those who tried to abolish traditions that, that would require them to care for their family members. So he's not destroying the family. And, and, and just from the creation account to the Ten Commandments to the New Testament letters, we, we see again and again that the earthly family construct 
is primary among all other institutions in society. And despite what seems like kind of a snub to his mom and his brothers in this text, eventually Jesus would return to Nazareth near his hometown where his family was still living and he would do ministry there. So we have to ask, well, what's actually happening here in this text? I think we're getting our first glimpse at a theme that's gonna continue through the New Testament. And it's today's big idea, that Jesus prioritized the spiritual family over the biological family. Jesus demonstrates the kind of the preeminence of a commitment to him and his kingdom, which places people in a new spiritual family. I wanna take you to another example of this over in Mark chapter 10, 28. This is a section following Jesus' encounter with the the rich young ruler, this young man who wouldn't part with his riches to follow Jesus. Now remember, the disciples are watching this exchange between Jesus and this young man. And as the young man hangs his head and he walks away from Jesus, leaving this opportunity of a lifetime, Peter, always the opportunist, pipes up. It says, and Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And so the drama of the moment hangs in the air. And Peter goes, well, look at us, Jesus. We left all that stuff and followed you, the stuff that this guy wouldn't leave. And Jesus is so gracious. Look at this incredible promise. He says in verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And so the promise of Jesus is that every sacrifice you make for God in this lifetime will be rewarded many times over. In other words, it'll be worth it. And we all know, we've read the Bible, we all know that we're promised heavenly rewards for earthly sacrifices. And Mark mentions that idea at the end of this passage. But there's another phrase a little earlier in verse 30 that gives, it's a totally radical insight into Jesus' concept of family. Jesus says that you're also going to receive the things that you gave up, uh, gave up as rewards a hundredfold. Look at this phrase. Now in this time. Remember, they had given up brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children to follow him. And he says that in this age, in this time, in this lifetime, that they are going to receive those relationships back a hundredfold. You will receive family-like relationships that will more than make up for those that you lost for the sake of Christ in this lifetime. What's Jesus saying here? What is he promising? What, what is he envisioning? Well, just like he played his hand in that last passage with his own family, Jesus is playing his hand here. He's promising a new family, a new community. And actually, guys, he's referring to the church. He's promising that people who lose their families for the sake of his kingdom will have a bigger and more robust family. The church is the promise. The church is the blessing. The church is the reward for those who have given up everything to follow Jesus. And we have to ask the question, are we living up to this promise? Is the church a compelling enough reward? And there are glimpses of this, even in our midst. I was talking to a friend from Grace a couple weeks ago. He was responding to our family series and he said, you know what? My family growing up was a mess. Dysfunction, abuse, alcoholism. I didn't stand a chance. And they said, do you know what changed everything for me? Grace Church. He said, I met Jesus here. I have a new community of friends here that I get to do life with. My whole life has been turned around. 
And so, yeah, there are glimpses that, that relationships in the church are supposed to mirror a, a healthy relationship with our biological brothers and sisters. And so, so often we've settled for less than that. So, so often we've settled for like, you know, I come to service on Sunday, I say hi to one person in the lobby afterwards, and, 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 and before you leave, you, you kind of talk about the game and what's for lunch, and then you call that Christian community. That is not living up to the reward. Jesus is promising his followers that when you're an outcast from your own family for the sake of the gospel, community is coming for you. And it's called the church. It's called the ecclesia. And he's casting vision that there will be a spiritual family that for many people will be closer to you than your biological family. This has caused me to reflect lately on exactly what the local church uniquely offers people. I mean, it's not Preaching and teaching, you can get the best preaching in the world at the click of a button on any podcast, any YouTube channel. You don't need to listen to a, a hack like me. <laughs> the best preachers in the world are at your fingertips. So is the best music. You can dial up any playlist from anywhere in the world and get better worship music than any church can produce around here. That there are a thousand activities, for example, that your kids can get involved in other than our kids' ministry here. But there are a couple of things that you can't get at the click of a button. You can't get a community of friends who are like family to you. You can't just dial that up on a device. And you also can't find a localized mission. You can't digitally produce the ability to go out like an army, as we did a couple of weeks ago with Servieri, and serve marginalized communities in your own city. So, so, so you get two unique resources through a local church. And, and, and honestly, most people in the world are desperate for both of these things. You get community and you get purpose. In fact, a healthy local church serves two of the major problems in our world today, loneliness and tribalism. A church solves loneliness with community, a loving community of people who serve Jesus and each other, and a church solves tribalism with purpose because that community that you're engaging in is diverse. It's diverse in age and background and race and political position, and you're pursuing a bigger purpose, bigger than all those things. And the common ground for it all is Jesus. The, the church family, it's community and it's purpose. And the, it's the reward Jesus promised his followers. You see, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have two families. The first one, your family of origin, is the one you were born into. You had no choice in that matter. You popped out and it is what it is. The, 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 that family may have been very nurturing or it may have been very dysfunctional. But either way, your family of origin cannot be changed. However, when you're born again through Jesus Christ, you inherit a new family. It's called the family of God. And you are grafted in, you are adopted in. You have a heavenly father and you have a whole new set of brothers and sisters and a whole new group of spiritual relatives to, to lean on in the church. And, and my point here, coming back to it, is to show you that Jesus' revolutionary view of family was to prioritize spiritual family over biological family. Let's look at one more example of this from Jesus. It's in John 19, in the crucifixion account of John. Jesus is hanging on the cross. His disciples have fled in fear, except for John and Mary and some other soldiers and admirers. Look at John 19, 26 and 27. We read, when Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What's happening here? At Christ's declaration, Mary and John became family to one another. 
and they would demonstrate all of the loyalty and commitment to one another that one would expect from a biological mother and son. So, so at Jesus' word, those who are not in the same biological family are united in a spiritual family at a level of intimacy which rivals and sometimes even transcends that of those whom you are connected to by blood. And this metaphor of, of a spiritual family, it was adopted by all the New Testament writers. And so when Paul uh, wanted the Roman church to welcome and, and help Phoebe, he called her our sister. And when Peter wanted to commend Silvanus to the church, he called him a faithful brother. And when the apostolic writers wanted to address an entire congregation, they frequently called them brothers and sisters. This all stems from the truth that as Christians, we are adopted as children of God into the household of God. Paul tells us of our new heritage when he writes in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, look at, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God created us and then he adopted us as his very own children. Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, look at, with God's people and members of God's household. So, so here's what that means for us. If you're at one of our physical locations today, I want you just to take a look around for a second. The people in the seats all around you are in fact your spiritual family. Now, many of you, for, 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 for you, the, the church doesn't necessarily feel like a family yet. Maybe it still feels more like a crowd. Or maybe for some of you, it feels more like a college classroom. Or maybe it feels like a concert or an event that you come to every once in a while. That, that's not how Jesus views it. That's not how the New Testament envisions it. The church is a family. And so we're going to be looking at the church's origin story over the next couple of weeks in the book of Acts to see how the church family is supposed to operate. But today, I just want to lay the foundation, and I want to introduce you to three distinguishing markers of Jesus' new family. The first is this. We are unified by our discipleship, not our bloodline. So biological families are unified by bloodlines, DNA that was passed from one generation to another to another, and finally ended up at you. And sometimes it leaves you shaking your head, frankly, when you see your crazy uncle with his shirt off doing the Macarena at a family reunion. You're like, I can't believe we're blood relatives, but we are. The, the spiritual family of Jesus is not held together by blood. It's held together by something more powerful. It's held together by love, the blood of Christ expressed in love, selfless, life-giving, agape love. And the love of Jesus is so powerful that it always positions the love of family, our biological family, in second place. Jesus is asking us to imagine a different social order where relational community is not dependent on natural bloodlines, but on discipleship. And Jesus came to establish this new family of disciples who will follow him with, with the entirety of all of our lives. And that family, that spiritual family, gets priority position. And it caused Jesus to say stuff like, you know, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not being harsh here. He's talking about priorities. And he's redefining family around himself. Yes, we all have a physical family here on earth defined by bloodlines. But there is an even more important family that we get to belong to. And it's the family of God. It will last forever. And it's defined by our discipleship, our followership of Jesus. And the key, you see, to this family unity is love. 
He says it this way in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Sounds pretty straightforward. That is until you remember that when Jesus selected his disciples, he chose 12 individuals from across the divides of a very polarized Jewish society, both politically and economically. It was a deeply divided ancient world. And just to put it in modern terms, there, there were Pharisees who would have been kind of like our you know, far-right fundamentalists of our day, deeply conservative on all issues, political and social. Then there were the Essenes. They, they were kind of like the Amish. They were separatists. They were unengaged, uninvolved with the world. Then there were the Sadducees. They were probably most like what we would call progressive mainline Christians, leaning liberal on most social issues of the day. And then there were the Zealots, maybe similar to like a Black Lives Matter protest group. Activists who were confrontational to the government. And then there were what were called the Sicarii, who were the violent faction. They were willing to take matters into their own hands, almost like Antifa or you know, the, the bombers of an abortion clinic. Now, these parallels aren't perfect, I, I understand, so don't get super literal with it all. But, but I'm trying to get you into a headspace here so that you can see the lengths to which Jesus was going to redefine how we view our spiritual family. Jesus himself, by the way, didn't fit into any of those groups. But when he gathered the 12, he had some who were sympathetic to all of them, sympathetic to the Essenes, some Sadducees, some Zealots. And it was a scandal who he chose to be part of his new family. In fact, the Bible uses a Greek word, scandalon, to talk about the emotional impact of Jesus' ministry. It was scandalous. He, he basically went around, he grabbed some protesters from the streets, he grabbed an evangelical, he grabbed a couple Amish kids, he grabbed a government worker, and he says, now, a new command I give you, love each other. And if you do that, the world will know that you're truly my disciples. Well, you're darn right they, they'll know. Can you imagine these people loving each other? See, Jesus scandalizes and disrupts the framework of our definitions of who will be in our new family. He says there's something bigger going on here than these small-minded divisions that you've erected between yourselves. And then he showed us the way by his example. He wasn't supposed to talk to a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were the equivalent of the Taliban to the Jews. He wasn't supposed to be kind to Roman soldiers. They were the oppressors. He was supposed to be speaking truth to power. He wasn't supposed to show acceptance to prostitutes or eat dinner with corrupt government workers. But he did all of these things because he was a scandalizer of the status quo. He was offering a different way, the way of love. And true disciples would walk in this way. So guys, we are members of a new family connected together in our followership, our discipleship of Jesus and unified by a love that doesn't make sense. So the first distinguishing marker of Jesus' new family is that we are unified by our discipleship and not our bloodlines. Here's the second marker. We are fueled by our selflessness, not our individual success. We said in the last series that one of the, the, the spoken or unspoken values of the nuclear family model, the American dream kind of family, 
is this idea that each family member must succeed individually. Dad needs to be successful in his work. Mom needs to be successful in her work. Sally, little Sally needs to be successful at school. Little Tommy needs to be successful at sports. And we will go to great lengths rearranging our lives, rearranging our schedules and our weekends and our need for family time to make sure that each individual reaches the heights of their individual goals. But in our new spiritual family, Jesus has given us new ground rules. The, the, the goal is anything is, is to, to help each other succeed. He says in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul would say later in Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we see the early church family living this out. Whenever there were needs that arose among them, people in the church would meet those needs. People would sell their lands and their properties and they would bring it to the disciples' feet so that the needs of others in the church might be met. That the we was greater than the me. And see, part of what made the church compelling to the world around them at the time was their selflessness. There was this ancient letter recovered. I've shared this before, but it's called the letter to Diognetus. It has been dated around 120 AD. The Christian movement was brand new. This was a letter written to a non-Christian trying to explain how this new upstart movement called Christianity was spreading so fast in the Roman Empire. And it gives us just a, a fascinating historical glimpse into the lives and habits of individual Christians in the early days of the church. So here's an excerpt from the letter. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens, for every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously but behave respectfully. They are mocked but blessed in return. And when they do good, they are attacked. And when they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Now, there's a bunch here, but there are at least four lifestyle choices that people were marveling at in this original church. And it's the last one that I'm driving at in this point, but I want you to see the other ones too. First is the complete absence of racism. Did you notice that? He said that they live as aliens and every foreign country is a native land. Every native land is a foreign country. That they were Christians first. Wherever they had come from in the world, they were Christians first. I'll come back to that in a moment. Notice also they had a high view of life. He says they don't kill unwanted babies. In ancient times, parents had the right to discard of female babies, for example, into the river, just kill them. It was all legal. But Christians refused these behaviors. They saw every life, no matter how unwanted, as precious. Third, they had a countercultural view of sex. Notice they didn't share their bed with everyone. A pagan understanding was that sex was just another appetite. When you, you're hungry, you eat. When you had sexual desires, you had sex with whomever. And Christians came along and they said sex is a celebration of a complete commitment within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And, and, and finally, to our point, there was this eye-popping generosity. He said they, they shared their table with everyone. As anyone had need, they shared People couldn't believe how quickly these Christians were to give their stuff away so that others would benefit, that they chose a simple lifestyle for themselves in order to better other people. They were short of everything, and yet they were happy with what they had. 
This is an open-handed life of contentment. Christianity took the, the Roman Empire by storm in, in that, those early days, not because of their political clout, not because of their protests, not because of their theological rants. Simply, nobody could match the beauty of the lives of these Christians. Their lifestyle was stunning, that their selflessness was startling. Paul would say it plainly, when you're, you're given a gift from God, not just a financial gift, but any gift, a skill, a talent, a past experience. Here's why God gave that to you. He gave it to you to serve others. He gave that gift to you, not just to benefit you, but to benefit someone else. And so I'd ask, is there anything in your life right now that you have mistakenly assumed was given to you for your own success? Maybe a position at work, maybe a, a windfall of extra money, maybe a little extra time. And you just assume, well, I'm just gonna spend this on me. Well, maybe it wasn't given for you and your success. Maybe it was given so that you could be selfless. Selflessness is the second marker of Jesus' new family. Here's the third marker, that we are known for our diversity and not our commonalities. So, so when you're part of a biological family, one of the things that happens is that there are common family traits. There are resemblances to your family ancestry. We say things like, oh, you have your mom's eyes, or you look just like your dad, or he has his grandpa's smile. There are these common physical traits or personality traits even or predispositions that, that tend to pass from generation to generation. These are family commonalities in a biological family. Now, by contrast, one of the outcomes of being in an adoptive family is diversity. So, so in the family of God, in our spiritual family, we were all adopted in. And so like any adoptive family, we come with radically different backgrounds and ages and ethnicities. So, so the church is not a homogeneous collection of people with everything in common. It is a very diverse collection of people whose only commonality is being adopted as a son or daughter of God. And so here at Grace, even though I would love for us to be much more racially diverse, we still have many ethnicities represented in our church body. And we're also diverse in other ways. We're diverse in age. We have young and old. We're diverse in background, in socioeconomic status. We're diverse in political party. We're diverse in theological ideologies. We are a melting pot, like everywhere else, of a great divergence of tribes and ideas. And I want to take you to what I think is one of the starkest pictures of church diversity in the Bible. It's in Antioch. One of the reasons Antioch is famous to us is because Acts 11:26 tells us that in Antioch, the, the disciples were first called Christians. This term Christians, which just means little Christ, that the, this place is where we got our name. Now, let me tell you about Antioch. Antioch was built in 300 BC, and like all cities in those days, it had a big protective wall around the outside. But what made Antioch unique is that it had huge walls built inside the city too. You see Romans and Greeks and Jews and Persians and Indians and Africans and Asians and a bunch of other ethnicities were represented in this city, 18 of them in all. And so in addition to this huge outer wall, they built huge inner walls outlining 18 separate ethnic quarters right into the architecture of the city. They were trying to physically keep these ethnicities from interacting with each other. 
because each one thought that they were superior to the rest. And if out in the marketplace, for example, a Jew stepped on the cloak of a Roman or there was some sort of dispute over food between an African and an Asian, then a fight would break out and soon everyone from one group would wanna wipe out every single person from the other group. This was the situation. Well, guess what happened in Antioch? The gospel of Jesus came into that city through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And you know what? People started crossing walls to worship Jesus together. And as a result, our spiritual ancestors were first called Christians in Antioch. The people around had to invent a word to assign to these folks because they defied category. They couldn't say anymore, well, there are the Romans worshiping, or there are those Jews worshiping, or there are the Greeks doing what they do, or look at the Africans over there doing their thing. There was a little bit of everyone following this Christ. And so the new group that, 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 that they're a part of seems to be taking precedent over their original ethnicity. They seem to love Jesus over their ethnicity of origin. And so let's just call them little Christs. Let's call them Christians. And today the, the term Christian comes with some negative baggage in our culture, doesn't it? But in the first century in Antioch, Christian was synonymous with inclusive, was synonymous with welcoming, grace-filled, diverse, unified. They lived so counterculturally that the world had to give them a brand new name. And guys, today I realize we don't have 18 physical walls dividing the church into groups, but that doesn't mean they're not there. So what would it look like in our day for the gospel to penetrate all of those invisible walls. See, in this new kind of family imagined by Jesus, we, we have to make a lot of room for people who are not like us. What an interesting and yet difficult assignment. It means that if you're part of a church where, where you need to get what you want all the time, you're not gonna be happy in that church. One of my pastor friends used to tell his church, he says, you're gonna probably really like about 60% of what we do around here in this church. And he said, the other 40%, you're not gonna like at all. But that 40% that you don't like at all, just remind yourself that there are other people in this church family who really love that 40%. And for their sake, you'll endure it. It's one of the compromises we make by living in an adoptive family where everyone comes from different backgrounds and traditions and preferences. It's one of the consequences of living in Jesus' revolutionary version of family a spiritual family that, that Jesus prioritized even over the biological family. So what do we do with all this? Well, let me give you a couple of next steps. The first, as always, is this. It's to come back for this whole series. We're gonna be talking about life in this church family for the next three weeks. Would you prioritize it? Would you put those three hours over the next month on your calendar? Like, you don't have to commit for the rest of your life, but will you just do it for the month of August? Just say, I'm not gonna miss a week. I just believe God honors it when we prioritize gathering with the church. That's number one. Second is a theme that you're gonna hear all month, and I'm, I'm gonna build it out much more in the weeks to come. But let me just give you a quick peek today. I wanna to invite you, maybe even urge you, <laughs> to join a life group if you're not already in one. And for some of you, it's time to lead a life group. So you can currently get up-to-date information on both of those things over at whoisgrace.com slash life groups. We currently have 81 grace groups that meet all over our region, mostly in people's homes. But there are online possibilities as well. 
We would love to see another 20 or so groups start up over the next couple of months to accommodate newer people who are looking to get into community. So if you'd like to lead a group, we have a process to help to train and prepare you for that role. We're not just gonna throw you into it without taking some time to equip you for the task. But, but our life groups are one of the best ways to begin to practice living out this new kind of family that Jesus called us to. Again, much more on that in the weeks to come, but I wanna plant the seed today. I love you guys, and I look forward to walking through this next series with you. God bless.